Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high-yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. I think it's a great transition. I mean, I mean, just talking about, you know, talking about the basics of soybean management and the early planning date. Um, I, I mean, I, I, why don't we just jump right in there? If, if, yeah. if you guys have done this research and we start there, um, when I think about early planted soybeans, we, we have kind of had this conversation around if, if you head out to the field and you think, man, I don't know that I should be putting corn in the ground. Um, what's your tolerance or what's your confidence in my ability to go out to um, soil that I traditionally have maybe thought I shouldn't be putting soybeans in? You know, for us, April 10th to April 15th is kind of usually well, when when we're ready to roll planters. I think even April 5th, two years ago. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of times, you know, we have, we have maybe 40, mid 40 degree soil temps. They're probably trending up, but they're going to come back down at some point. I mean, into April, we almost always have a dip in soil temp. So, walk me through your opinion on on uh, the ability to tolerate that early planting. Sure. So, I always like to start these conversations that you know, if you you don't screw up the first time, you don't have the opportunity to replant. So, I just <laughs> want to make that right here, you know, um, uh, frame. So. So interestingly enough, um, <clears throat> about probably a couple months ago, probably more than that, you know, I started digging through the literature just to get at that question, Sean and Andrew, about, you know, what do you plant corn, you know, or excuse me, what do you plant, plant first, corn or soybeans? And believe it or not, and you may know the believe this, that I went through probably the last 50 years of published research and I could not find one paper at all where they planted corn and soybeans on the same day, the same location, multiple times. Really? That data does not exist. It's not out huh. there. Or if it is, it's in some file cabinet and they never <laughs> published it. So what we did is we kind of went through and using, again, some of these algorithms and the data we've done is we kind of ran some simulations and we just kind of asked that specific question, what, what do you plant first? And I'll just use Southern Wisconsin and just, because that's a frame of reference, but we could run the same scenario for a lot of the states, high states cross country. And basically what we found is you roughly start planting beans five to seven days before you stick plant corn. Then you plant beans as fast as you can. And roughly right around that last week of April, um, again, this is Southern Wisconsin. It'd be a different time frame for, you know, around Ames or middle of, of Illinois, you probably just set it back a week to seven days or five to seven days before you normally plant there. And then you just run corn till you're done and then you end finishing up soybeans. And if, it kind of makes sense. I mean, if you think about back to looping in soybean physiology and corn physiology and yield components, I mean, frankly, if you plant early, you can lose half your stand of soybeans. Okay, let's say you drop a unit, 140,000 seeds per acre. 
you could have 70,000 seeds per acre out there planted the 10th of April in an I state, and you could still hit 100 bushels per acre and still maximize yield. Now, you take a corn plant out there and you lose half your stand. What's the oh, yeah. what's the impact on the corn? Yeah. You're not going to have. Yep. You're gonna, yeah. So that's part of it. I mean, it comes down to stand and the the the, the plasticity aspect of it. Um, then you also have to layer in how quickly you 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 lose yield. And on the corn side, you typically have lose yield faster by delaying planting date than you do in soybean. Again, it gets back to that phenotypic plasticity. And you can compensate by increasing your seeding rate or doing some other things to to lower that yield penalty by delayed planting. And that's why once it's go time in corn, you just give her on corn. And again, this is assuming you have one planter. This might change if you have multiple planters. And we kind of ran the scenario for the entire country and kind of looked at what is the day that you need to switch from corn, excuse me, from soybeans to corn. And interestingly enough, I think a lot of it goes back to the question I think Sean asked earlier is like, you know, when do you start rolling soybeans? And in my case, you have to first remember that both soybean um, and corn can both have some issues with, um, you know, those that cold rainfall, imbibitional chilling. I knew I would remember if I stall long enough. So you can get imbibitional chilling with both corn and soybeans, but the window for imbibitional chilling on soybeans is so much shorter than it is in, co in corn. It's only a few hours in the soybean side. And again, I don't know, Sean and Andrew, you can, you can say what it is in corn. Frankly, I don't care about corn. So I don't know what that <laughs> data is, but I know it's more than a few hours. Yep. Um, so if you're sitting out there and that soil temperature is 44 degrees, there's not a cold rainfall predicted in the next day, all right? And you're trending up and the soil is fit that you're not going to have sidewall compassion. I tell farmers start this letter rip because uh, the base temperature for soybean germination emergence is less than 50, depending on which journal article you look, like, look at. It's either 46 or 48 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's actually less than corn yeah, is. Yeah. Um, you know, we didn't. We really didn't focus on it because if you look at historically, when when did all of this whole plant physiology work get done? In the seventies, roughly late sixties, early seventies, where all these foundational physiology papers were done. Well, when did we plant beans in the seventies? June first. Yeah. June tenth. Yeah. You know, we didn't we didn't think about planting soybeans in May really. <laughs> Right, much less April or March. So I think there's a lot of things, and that's one of the cool. That's one of the things I really want to dig into is kind of figure out what's going on with this base temperature for germination and emergence. Yeah, but you know that's really not super sexy. People don't really want to pay, you know, to do that kind of research. But I think that's some fundamental research. And one of the cool things we also learned is we had this um, decade study, and it's probably five, six years old now, but what we did is we got soybean germplasm from the 1920s all the way up through, let's say, 2017, 2018. So we had like 70 varieties, you know, sprinkle across from the 1920s to the, the 20 teens. 
And what we found, interestingly enough, is today's modern genetics, we see a synergy with earlier planting and higher yield. Um, I know this is a, um, you know, people can't really see me on this podcast, but generally if the response was the same and you just planted earlier, you would see parallel lines, okay? Just the response from earlier planting. But we see is a higher trend with today's modern genetics that we have a higher yield increase from planting earlier than we did, you know, even 20, 30 years ago. So we're seeing the synergistic influence, which again, that's a very, another cool research question, because if you look at the breeders with, I don't care who it is, university breeders, industry breeders, they're not going out there planting their handful of seeds, you know, in March, because they don't want to lose it because that's all they got. So they're continuing to run their nurseries and their, you know, their advancements still when mid-May, when, you know, the the breeders are out there running these seed increases and these early advancements. So how are we capturing that earlier yield when we're not exposing these seeds to that earlier planting date? So that's kind of a cool, again, I don't want to get too esoteric here, you know, with (laughs) with the group. But, I mean, these are just cool things that I see that pop up. Why the hell is that happening? What's causing that? So I, I just think there's some cool synergies we can take advantage of once we you know, figure that out. And actually, breeders had no clue that this was even happening out there. When, Took when, a bunch of agronomists to kind of tell breeders <laughs> they were doing. So it's it makes sense. They're, yeah. I, I have a running joke with all the breeders here. You know, all you have to do to be a plant breeder is know how to sort an Excel spreadsheet. That's pretty much how I do it. <laughs> that's good i'm gonna have to use that i know a number of breeders i'm gonna see how that goes how, yeah. how does that work yeah. i think you just <laughs> offend, oh, i think you just offended like 25 percent of our listeners <laughs> sean, sean when when do you look at you know talking about the early planting when do you when do you start to see yield increases with those early planting soybeans and, and then why do you think you know i'm a huge proponent of of early planting the soybeans, but I feel like it's it's iffy if we're going to see a, a yield increase. And and even when you factor in the rains or the temperature, sometimes it just seems like it's just inconsistent. So when do you start right. seeing those consistent yield increases with early planting? And then also, why do you feel like it's so inconsistent? That's a good question. So <clears throat> I'll start with the, where do we see these? And we basically start seeing these. And I will go back to the old... Um, Crop insurance replant dates. All right. Now those just got redone. So in 2023, a lot of the states, uh, like for example, Wisconsin. So I'll just use Wisconsin again because it's a frame of reference that I'm most familiar with. In 2022, the entire state of Wisconsin, the replant date where you can get crop insurance was April 26th. So if you planted on April 25th, you lost your stand because of environment. In theory, you wouldn't get any, you know, replant crop insurance. Yep. Well, they moved southern Wisconsin from April 26th back to April 15th. Uh, the central Wisconsin back to April 20th. And then northern Wisconsin to 25th. So they didn't do a lot of changes in the north, which makes sense. Yeah. But we gained roughly 10, what about that, 26. We gained 11 days in the south. And generally what I would figure is that it was that Week to 10 days before that <clears throat> crop insurance date is when we would see that response. Now, you were asking, Andrew, about when that the, the predictability of it. 
And that comes down back to the whole seed fill time frame. And we did uh, kind of some modeling work from this benchmarking project where we had, again, yield from over 8,000 farm fields, 600,000 acres of data. We had it modified by these TEDs. And what we were able to do is using our weather data, really sort out that when you were short in rain during that seed fill period, uh, that's when you really did not realize the yield advantage from earlier planting. Because you would generally at that point cut again. So for the audience that's un <clears throat> unaware of why we typically see higher yields from earlier planting, it's generally because we have more seeds per unit area. Yep. We're increasing the number of seeds per whatever it would be per acre basis, per square foot. We're just seeing more seeds on a per plant basis. So that plant effectively has more seeds. All right. <laughs> but, you know, with soybeans being as the as the phenotypic plasticity that they have, if they don't have a lot of rain fill during that seed fill period, what do you have? You have a bunch of little BBs in there. You can, just don't get that. Seed can fill. I ask a question about that, Sean? So yeah. when, you, when you when you use the term more seeds per unit area, yep. is is there a correlation between amount of growing time and potential for pods or seeds? Yes, in that we typically see with an earlier planting, and again, a lot of this, remember, is phenotypic plasticity, environmentally driven, Yep. but we tend to get two to three more nodes per plant when we plant that two to three weeks earlier. And I can't give you one node per week. I right. can probably figure that out. I just don't have it up top. I should figure that out. <laughs> I'll, I'll do that later. I bet um, Damon would know. <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes I tease, I tease David. He, I don't think he knows the difference between corn and soy. There, yeah. So again, it's, it's simple math: two to three extra nodes per plant. You know, we have a hundred, and well, by the time you have some loss, hundred thousand plants per acre out there. Then you have three pods per node, two point two seeds per pod. You know, it's pretty simple math that just drives why we have that yield increase, and then you put on top of it that seed fill period. And, and again, sorry for the audience, I keep re re referencing Wisconsin, but I'm going to go back to it. If we look back to uh, 2021, where we had our record year in terms of yield production, our average seed size was 11% greater than it was across the I states. Yeah. So that record yield came from Record early planting, so we had an increased number of seeds per unit area out there, and then we had 10% greater seed size in the I states, and boom, you know, that's where, <clears throat> it's not magic, but it sounds like magic, it's math, that it just kind of works out, and that's where we got our record yields. How, how, what is the the effect of, of temperature and, and sunlight on soybeans? And I ask that because, you know, obviously we compare C4 versus C3, soybeans versus corn. You know, we, we know soybeans are a short day plant and it's impacted by the amount of, actually the amount of nighttime that we have, right? Before we start yep. the flowering process. So so what's the impact of, of sunlight in temperature? Yeah, and that's, again, not as simple as it is on the corn side of things. Because remember, if you remember a couple of years ago when we had all of that, um, oh, the, the forest fires in Canada and we had a lot oh, yeah. of yeah. that, we didn't have quite the the amount of sunlight that we typically would get is kind of that hazy reflective light. Um, but we still had record yields that year. I, 
know, because everyone's been sort of, oh, what is this, you know, going to do? And I think, I think, I think that that math still needs to be worked out, and maybe it takes someone smarter than me. I, that's fine. That's typically <laughs> what I do. I well, not me I, then. I, Count me out. My, my, <laughs> I have figured out my best way to success is hire people smarter than me. I had a theory about those Canadian wildfires and everyone tells me I'm crazy, but I'm, I'm going to say it as often as I can. So someday in the future, someone might reference me there. We, we were in a pretty serious drought and I actually think that that week or two week where we were really hazy, I actually think protected our corn crop. I, yeah. I, I think we didn't roll as free. And Andrew just gave me the same look he always gives no, me when I, <laughs> I, 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 never I, thought sw- of that, I, I swear by it. We had two weeks. I play a lot of golf. Everybody gives me trouble for it. Um, cause I should be in the field, but you know, we were playing golf in the middle of July and it should have been scorching hot. And, and it was, and it was, you were reasonably protected because of that, that, uh, those, those wildfires. And I'm convinced that helped buy us seven to 10 days that so we were right on the edge of a crop failure and we ended up with one of the biggest crops we've ever had. So yeah. I'm getting a skeptical I th- I th- look I think, for all the listeners. No, I'm I, getting a we, skeptical we could, look. I mean, we, we could run through photosynthesis and, and respiration rates, what? you know, all this metabolic mm-hmm. processes and, and you could, you could put some science to cloud cover. I mean, we know, I mean, in, in correct me if I'm wrong here, now that we have the guru of soybeans, I mean, in, in a perfect world, soybeans respond like you take them out to Washington State where they get more rain, more cloud cover, you know, not the intense sun. They'll out yield if you compare it to Iowa where they're, you know, we're more of an environment for a C4 plant. Where, yeah, right. So so there's there's definitely some some truth to that. Uh, back on track. Sorry for the All tangent. Right. Sorry. I, I, I digress. And that usually ha- that happens a lot to me. I, I go down the rabbit hole and sometimes I uh, well, chasing Andrew around, it's kind of like, <laughs> it's like hurting a cat, you know, you just, um, management practices. So we, we've, we've talked about early planting. Um, mm-hmm. I actually really appreciate, uh, kind of your soy, pick your optimum corn date, plant corn, and then finish soy. I, I think when we sometimes try and talk people into early planted soybeans, I think they view that as deferring, um, you know, pushing off their corn planting. And so I like the idea of maybe, maybe buffering both sides of it. I think that's an easier method to think about. But when we think about other practices, whether it's nutrient applications, um, stuff like that, do you think how am I, what am I trying to ask you? Help me, help me ask that question. I mean, I, I think this question was kind of geared around, we have all these practices in corn that, in, that we, we, we do to impact yield, starter fertilizer, infrared seed treatments, infrared insecticides. Yep. You know, I feel like there's just so much technology, time and money put into a corn crop regarding mm-hmm. those, those practices. Yeah. Do you ever think we'll get there with soybeans? Should we be using starter fertilizer? Is there other yeah. stuff, you know, because, you know, we got numerous different pathogens in the soil, you know, f- that we don't deal with in corn. Are, are we ever going to get there with soybeans? L- l- let me ask a slightly more directed conversation. I'm a lagger, okay? I'm a lagger, mm-hmm. make me a leader. In 2023, what, what, would you, what would you encourage as a practice change? And then, yeah. So, I, so... You typically, and again, I'm, it's a broad umbrella here, um, but typically if you look at laggards, they <clears throat> are not quick to move on new technologies, i.e. genetics or traits. Uh, they are not quick to change 
you know, when they start planting planting date, they're they're going to use glyphosate one pass until they burn through it, and they'll continue <laughs> to do it even after they burn through it. Um, and you know, a lot of it comes down to soil fertility. I, you know, I think a lot of times if you look at the laggards, they're always short on soil fertility um, in terms of just their of how often they take soil samples. Do they actually know what their pH is? Do they know? Do they have a prescription for how much P and K that we put out there? And even I they would argue with some of the leaders. I think one of the challenges we've kind of are getting into is that on, on the soybean side of thing is. Again, let's assume, you know, farmers are usually under two umbrellas. They're either going to put all their P and K, sulfur, whatever, out in front of their corn. So they do it once every two years. All right. And then you have those other growers that'll put it out annually. They'll put it out in front of the corn. And then in the fall after the corn in front of their soybeans. So you have two different groups doing it. Well, I think one of the challenges we're seeing with farmers recently, the ones that are putting it out all in front of the corn, Three out of the last five years, you've had record corn yields. So where does all that fertility go? Oh yeah, yeah. To the elevator. You're short. Yep. Then, yeah, they're short. I think they're, we're getting short on the soybean side of things. And then you think about all of that record corn yield. What does that give us for residue? I would say we're having record corn yeah. residue biomass out there as well. I think there's fairly well established relationship. That's yeah. Well, I'll be curious to see with the shore corn and its relationship with biomass and um, sourcing and all that stuff. That again, yeah. that's a topic for another conversation. Well, you, but, you, you uh, kind of brought up you kind of brought up one of the the questions we got coming up. What what is the relationship with corn residue? You know, we know it oh, yeah. leaves about three x the amount of residue than the soybean crop. So, how does that impact you know your soil and, and yields when you're going into a soybean crop? You know, above and beyond just the fertilizer, because you know there's other there's other bacterial and fungal Im- impact. You know, just so we've, yeah. we've been fighting this challenge because I'm really trying to, you know, because I do not want farmers to go back to the plow. I do not want bare ground out there. There's a lot of reasons for that. You, Sean and Andrew, you guys talked about it earlier with that the, all the rainfall on the frozen ground and seeing that soil go down the creek and out, out off the land. So we're really trying to get farmers to really stick with this. But again, it's really challenging to handle all of this heavy residue. And what we've kind of found up here, and I actually have a grad student working on this right now, is that we tend to see, depending on the years, a zero to five bushel yield, negative yield impact, no-tilling into some of this heavy corn residue. Hmm. Um, oh, five years ago, I had a master's student on it. I'm like, ah, this would be easy to solve. It's, it's related to um, soil temperature, and it's related to uh, moisture, you know, because Soil's not going to warm up as much in a no-till situation with a lot of corn residue, and it's not going to dry out as fast. Well, that wasn't it. So hmm. um, we kind of measured all of that information. It was pretty similar, no differences. So I have a student right now working on this project. We're actually putting out, you know, uh, we're removing residue in the fall and the spring. We're doing some different practices. And what we've actually found, and not that again, this is one year, one location. I don't want all farmers in the world going out doing this. We found going out and just spraying about 30 pounds of 28 in these heavy corn residue areas when they're no-tilling their beans in there pretty much alleviated that yield penalty from that early planting. And I don't know if it's simply a nitrogen tie-up 
with all that corn residue that we're not getting. Um, maybe we're not getting the best biological end fixation in those cool soils to begin with. Uh, we're not getting that good early season growth that is required to maximize that seeds per unit area that we need a little bit of end to kickstart that soybean. And is the end kind of breaking, starting to help break down some of that corn residue and release some of those tied up nutrients. So my my grad student is, we did the simple stuff, you know, we we measured yield. Now we're trying (laughs) to sort out what is the mechanism? You know, is it, is there some microbial activity? Sean, I talked about that earlier about microbes. And, you know, is there something going on in that sense that we're having uh, an environment initially in these high residue corn systems that aren't really suitable to maximize soybean yield because of some, I don't want to call it slow growth syndrome because then someone will go and spout off about that. And say, I got a product. <laughs> we got this right. new disease or this new uh, yeah, situation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sean Conley but, was talking about the slow growth syndrome. Yeah. <laughs> so, I so, need to invent more problems. <laughs> So, so you, I mean, you, you purposely led in, you know, did a really good job leading in another question that ties in talking about residue. And my question mm-hmm. that I feel like I've never got a good answer to in, in terms of, you know, you're coming off four five, 10 years, continuous corn. That's when we see those massive soybean yields, right? Yep. But you, you think about residue coming off four to 10 years, continuous corn, obviously it would be heavier. Have you, I feel like I've never throughout my entire I mean, I think we have some speculation as far as disease, but I don't feel like I've ever got a good answer as to why we why we consistently see. And this is the, one of the few things where you'll get consistency with soybeans. Why we get consistent right. high yields coming off continuous corn? Yeah. What, what's your What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, and it's typically what we see is that yield response will happen after two years. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> not as big as let's say ten years of continuous corn, but whenever we have two two crops in between soybeans so i don't care if it's corn corn soybeans corn winter wheat soybeans whatever that will be we tend to see that second year of an off soybean crop really give us a yield advantage again it's two to five bushels just depending on year and whatnot and um part of it is i think one of the, so i had a grad student um Lindsay Malone is her name. Now she has a climate smart position at NDSU. We kind of started digging into the like the microbiome of what's going on in these continuous corn, continuous soybean, and um, in these corn soybean rotations. And as you would expect, there's a lot of different, and for lack of a more scientific word, I'll say critters. Okay? <laughs> there's, um, if you look at, Going in, collecting the microbiome, screening, you know, all the living um, microorganisms in there. There are significant differences about what's living, if you will, in a continuous corn versus a continuous soybean. Those those figures do not overlap at all. There's two, obviously, because soybeans aren't really conducive to mycorrhizae, where corn is. There's a lot of these different things that you would you would expect. Uh, just because of a grass species versus a legume species. Yep. Um, so I think there's probably something going on in there. I mean, again, we just casually say it's disease related. Yeah. And I, I don't know if it gets to. That's about the answer I've got the last 15 years. <laughs> those, disease. Those nibblers. You know, there's <laughs> a lot of pathogens out there that they're just, again, 
plant pathologists call them nibblers. They're not big yield loss things, but they just take its toll on the root system so that if we do have stress, that soybean isn't as resilient to be able to overcome it. I think it's still a good question, you know, that I think as our tools and our technologies to actually refine things, because, you know, we yeah. did this microbiome and there's like 600 different things out there. I'm like, what? My old major professor at Iowa State, Mr. Darren Mueller would always call them cooties. <laughs> it's it's interesting to think about the residue conversation and and this goes back to the data piece i wish we had more of it but when the duration came through there was a lot of people using a a variety of different decomposition tools you oh, know yeah. there there was there was products in the market and i know a lot of people stripped fields because mm-hmm. they wanted to see you know they wanted to see if they could if they could see a yield increase it'd be fun to try and look at some of that data from a um just from a, a total plant material on the ground. Um, there's a couple products in particular that I know got used around here really heavily. And some of them you could, you could see right to the line where they had been applied in terms yeah. of breaking down that, that residue. It'd be fun to try and see if, if any of that data, you know, showed up in soybean yields the next year, but yeah. Well, uh, I suppose moving on, um, is, is there anything, you know, this is something that I think, especially working with soybeans or dealing with them, you, you often think about, you know, I've heard some pretty high numbers. What is it? Soybeans abort about 70% of their pods, give or take. Um, right. Is, is there any research or is it even worth looking at research to try and reduce that? Yeah, so my, my good my good friend, Bill Wiebold, who is a, the soybean agronomist dad down in Missouri, that was actually his PhD project in like the 60s. To really try to figure out a way to minimize the pot abortion, and, and unfortunately, when you start, and again, this is my understanding because this isn't really my my forte, if you will, on the plant breeding side. But once you start messing with those um, plant hormones that dictate abortion, then you or lack thereof, then you start having some other related issues oh, that yeah. minimize yield. So that's a lot of a lot of genes that are interacting that um, that have an influence on that pot abortion, whether they keep it or not. And, you know, frankly, I was in, in a short sense trying to tell farmers, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. Soybeans are not there to make you money. All right. Soybeans <laughs> are there to do what? They are there to reproduce. Okay? They are there to reproduce and prevent and, and develop offspring for the next generation. So that plant and its own, I, it doesn't think, it doesn't have a brain. Yeah. But, you know, it just sits there and goes, all right, I'm going to keep and produce as many viable seeds as possible to make sure that my offspring are 100% okay to go forward and, yeah. you know, repopulate the world. Okay, that's that's the mentality when you're thinking about working with soybeans that I think you have to understand. Yeah, annual versus right. perennial, right? I think there's yeah. a lot of farmers that would agree with you that the soybeans are here to <laughs> make, make money. money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, that quote that, that might get misquoted. Just so you know, <laughs> that might be another one that gets uh, that gets taken out of context. Well, as long as it doesn't get me canceled in the same community, <laughs> there you go. Um, we we we. So thinking about abortion, thinking about pod size, talking about planting earlier. Obviously, um, the size of soybeans. The, the seed matters, right? The weight matters. That's yep. that's what we're harvesting. Is there a genetic 
component to soybean size or is that strictly related to grain fill? There is, because I think if you all, even within your own individual platforms, portfolios, you know of a specific variety that in general is going to have, you know, higher seed. And again, I'm not stumping for a company at all, but I remember an NK S21 N6, okay? That sucker would have the biggest beans year in and year out. Hmm. It's high yielding. But, you know, that's been gone for 10, 15 years. So yeah. it's not like you get access to it or anymore. But on the flip side, there's no relationship between seed size and yield. Right. So that's the thing that always kind of frustrates because we we sit there and we'll go through. It's like the test we weight, kernel weight conversation, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> we sit here, we'll have like three over 300 varieties that come in. And we do, you know, uh, thousands, thousand seed counts we have weights on every single variety that we plant and every year i'll just just for fun i'll just draw a relationship between seed size planted and yield and there's no relationship there's there's nothing there and obviously some varieties will have larger seeds then <clears throat> that generally probably means they have fewer seeds per pot yeah it's yeah. just a trade-off it's like yeah. you get heavier seeds but you get less yeah. seed yeah Kind of like, I mean, corn does the same thing, right? Maybe not to that, you know, to that level. But yeah, obviously, yeah, there's that impact. You, you start looking at a, a, a acre of land, right? You only get so much, whether it's seed weight or seed number. At the end of the day, it's going to, the mother nature is going to determine that, right? Some, someday we're doing a, the the great test weight debate on, a, on the podcast. <laughs> That's like our favorite conversation. I, yeah. I love having the, the conversation of test weight and yield. It's, so it's I would cr- like to listen to the whole thing about uh, <laughs> what is it? It's um, the fixed versus flex corn. Yeah. I oh, think my. that's a bunch of crap. Oh, it is. That's just me. I, okay. I just I just had the conversation. My favorite professor of all time, my crop physiology professor in grad school. If if I would even mention that, he would be like, "There's no such thing as a fixed or a flexed ear. It's, it's all so, breeding and ability to tolerate a neighbor." I told I told uh, I told Andrew what I want to do is I want to get together all of our podcast guests like quarterly, but do like like bourbon and agronomy, you know, and wait till everybody's like two bourbons in to start <laughs> like, and then just toss an idea like test weight into the middle and. see how it it comes out but we will we will we will auger on um talking about high yield management of soybeans if you know you have a um a really high yield environment let's say we're coming out of a a decade's worth of corn uh Mm -hmm. highly productive environment great fertility is there ever an advantage going to an extremely high population i know we're pushing populations down uh uh now we're probably even below a unit per acre in a lot of cases but what about in those environments running a a high rate like two hundred fifty thousand? generally what we see at some point too high of a population in soybean will give you the same thing as too high of a population in wheat as you actually see the yield start coming down. Okay. Uh, tip in this scenario, uh, Sean, I would guess it'd be a lodging related issue just because of how high, if it is high fertility, low disease, those plants are out there. It's going to be monster bushes and you're, you're planting at that high of a seeding rate. What are they going to do? They're not going to go out. They're going to go straight up. Yep. Yep. I'm a commission-based salesman here. I'm trying to find <laughs> someone to help me move some volume of soybeans. And every year you guys keep lowering the uh, recommended rate. It doesn't. <laughs> so 
I actually recommend the opposite where you yeah. have lower yield potentials where it should increase yeah. the seeding rate. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And I think in our, yep. in our first, in our first episode with you, I think we, we yep. kind of talked about that maybe, maybe going as low as a hundred or 120 in the best areas. And, and I think maybe as high as 180, if I, if I recall um, pushing those populations up kind of the inverse yep. of yep. Uh, probably what a lot of people maybe think. So yeah. do, you, do you have any experience with uh, um, plant hormones? You know, that, that's something I've heard a few yep. of the yield contest people start having that discussion on. You know, there's a certain time and a place when you're trying to get more nodes and, and, and stuff, you know, focus on on beans per pod, pods per node, nodes per plant. Is there any truth to that? So typically what we've seen, I, I usually have farmers ask me two things related to plant hormones. One is they want to keep their beans short so they don't lodge and fall over um, in the north because of white mold and other other challenges we have there and the other hormones are related more like to stress mitigation and and i've actually seen some of them actually work but if you have to remember how understanding plant physiology when you when you induce a plant response with a plant hormone those are pretty short-lived and i think a lot of these yield contest winners are out there every week putting something out there so a lot of these hormones maybe work three to five days. So if you time it right, <clears throat> and there is a stress event during that time frame, then yeah, they 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 can work. I think the challenge is though is understanding the right timing because we did it. We tried for like four years. One year, you know, they're talking about all of this is for stress mitigation. Three out of the four years, it didn't do squat. The one year where we actually had we timed the application with a significant heat event. Uh, water stress, we did see a significant yield response was paid for it, which makes sense. I mean, if you understand the physiology and how long a product, what, you know, works three to five days, we timed it right, it worked. So I think, yes, they can work. You just have to get the timing right and understand yeah. when, where they kind of fall into place. Just understanding how quickly that plant is going to burn through that, you know, that, that hormone. It's kind of like sugar. I've, you know, the most angry emails and phone calls I've ever gotten <laughs> from anybody is my annual blog article about um, don't apply sugar to your soybean crop. And now there are some people very passionate about sugar, but again, just do the math, a pound of sugar. So that's basically one gram of sugar per square foot. Cause what's a pound is 434 grams. There's 43,560 square foot in an acre. It's one gram sugar per square foot. I mean, if you're going out there with corn, how much sugar is coming off of all that corn as it decomposes? Hell of a lot more than one gram. And one yep, gram, yep. they can't do anything. So yep. anyway, uh, I just want to throw that out there. Sorry to digress again. Uh, no, it's just uh, it's it, good info. You can always tell when you're when you're pushing around the buttons that get people excited. It's good. <laughs> we, I, uh, what about uh, what about liquid potassium in season? Like an R1 application of liquid potassium. Um, I mean, basically that's that between R2 and R3 is when the highest uptake of K is. I, the, where I would think something like that would have the biggest probability of a response would be in a low K testing field. Just because if you have to understand, soybean is a luxury consumer of K. Okay. It's kind of a K pig. It'll take up way more K than it actually goes into the seed. 
And then it all kind of goes into the biomass and goes back out in the field. Um, we did some work with Adam Gaspar, one of my grad students, look at our uptake in partitioning. So again, I think in a low, if there's a stress that was at, during that R, that R2 to R4 growth stage, it was limiting in K uptake, and that would help with uptake or availability, or if you're in a low test field, that's where I think something like that would work. This is not a management question, um, but it's a question I kind of wanted to ask you about um, maybe as as we're getting towards the end of the show. Um, there's been a lot of talk about an increased need for soybeans. We've got crush facilities coming online. Um, would you give your maybe just brief take on the on the market right now for soybeans and 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 some of these predictions about the need for increased acres and wh where's your head at with all that? I mean, if you if you just looked at what NAS came out with, they're not really looking at pushing, you know, pro projected plantings for 2023. We're not seeing much movement on soybeans, uh, at least. And again, that's because a lot of these new crush facilities aren't going to be coming online for another year or two. Yep. Uh, but again, I think a lot of it's going to be dominated by the RFS, you know, the renewable fuel and what what's going to be coming along those lines. Uh, the, the good thing, if you will. Yep. Is that uh, when we plant early, we actually have higher oil content, you know, for 30 years, we've been grouching because the earlier we plant our protein drops. Well, now if our demand is on oil, the earlier we plant, the higher our oil content is. So that kind of helps fit into that relationship, if you will. So I, you know, and when's our next election? Who's going to be the next president in two years? That's going to dictate a lot, a lot of things. So unfortunately, you have science, you have policy, and you have politics all coming together, and uh, that's hard to hard to predict. We well, you didn't know we were here to talk that? politics, did you? We didn't. We didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, but if you if you if you really look though, I mean, if you really look at the carbon footprint of these crush plants, especially if some of these pipeline opportunities come to and I know I know we're staying away from hot button issues but I mean there's a there's a version of this where it's some of the most renewable fuel you could ever create right yep. I mean in terms of environmental impact um whether or not it it necessarily aligns with political views there there is some really great opportunities for agriculture if 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 we go down this path no yeah. well Sean uh yeah. it, it's been a pleasure again and our final question um, goes goes to you, and it's one that you know I, I remember. Boy, I remember seeing listening to you at the Agri Business Association meeting. I don't know if it was ten, twelve. I don't know. It was, it was a while ago. And I, I I know you've done a lot in your career, so I'm curious what's what's one thing looking back in your career that that you've been a part of that you just think is really awesome or really cool or game changing in in the soybean world. What, what's what's that one thing that you think of that's just like that that cool moment? That is a good question. Jeez. <laughs> um, I think I think one of the coolest things if by what is the relationship that we as soybean agronomists have built across the country, not just within our core group. We have the science for success team that has all the soybean agronomists across the country working to together on collective experiments, uh, developing uniform protocols and answering bigger questions. Um, and then 
to that end, I think the other thing is we've really pushed industry, you all, to spend more, and farmers for that matter, to spend more time focusing on soybean and maybe trying to remove that moniker of the redheaded stepchild or, <laughs> you know, it's that scavenger crop out there to, you know, in, you know invest the money into a crop that, you know, can be profitable, will be profitable if you spend the time and energy to, you know, do the, do your due diligence and pick a good variety and, you know, do X, Y, and Z. So I think that's been, I've seen a big change on farmer and industry's mentality to spend money on soybeans. Yeah. So I think those are probably the two, the two things that, that I've really kind of seen change over my tenure working on, on soybeans through the collaborations and the, the, the willingness to actually have in money on beans. Yeah. Sean, we end our show the same way uh, every week, which is uh, I cash in my penny. Um, Andrew, give us, uh, give us your succinct takeaways. Uh, this will be a, a tough one to narrow down to a couple, but it was, I had a lot of notes here. Um, I don't, boy, I don't know if they're going to be three relevant ones, but it's, it's what stood out in, in my uh, head listening to, to Sean. Uh, the, the first one, I think you brought up a good point. You know, we, we, all, we, we continuously talk about planting soybeans earlier. You, you kind of put a, a good frame of reference. Plant your soy, start planting soybeans, plant soybeans five to seven days if you're talking early April, right? Then get all your corn planted and then come back and finish up with beans, right? Yeah. We, we know that window of when corn needs to be planted. We know we start losing yield eventually. Um, so focus on your beans. If, if you got time in early April, depending on where you are, you know, geographically, focus on beans, five to seven days, switch to corn, finish with your beans, right? Um, the, the second one, it, it kind of stood out to me, you know, you, you said you dug into looking for research papers comparing corn and soybean early planting yeah. dates clearly if there's nothing out there right now we need somebody needs to do some work on that right we need to start looking at planting dates for both corn and beans with the same planting dates see how see how that impacts yield over a month and a half of, of different planting dates and and then the second one the, the the final one that kind of stood out to me was um kind of this whole discussion on you know going back to your big data approach you know we have you know you gave the website and we'll link that you know you, you can go to coolbean.info and and you know, potentially be a part of this this project. Um, you know, you, you mentioned five bushel an acre average over all those acres. Three to five, I think, is what you said. Is that is that correct, Sean? That's that's yep. huge. Three to five bushel in soybeans yeah. per acre. That's that's some money. It, well, and, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, so if we can start implementing some of these basic practices, especially as we evolve in technology, you know, th this this big data approach could really take off, and it 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 just it it really intrigues me, and, and I'm I'm hoping growers can you know, across the corn belt become, we get more leaders versus laggers when we start seeing data like this. So I think this is really good. I love it. I'm actually excited. I get to do the teaser today. Um, kind of at request from some of our listeners and, and frankly, something I wanted to learn about Andrew um, is really a deep dive into soil analytics and soil tests. Um, understanding how to read them and then how to take action on them. So we have a special guest coming from actually K-State. Looking forward to it. Dr. Sean Conley, uh, give our listeners uh, your website, Twitter. Uh, tell us how to be connected with what you're doing. Yeah, the, I encourage farmers to kind of follow me on my Twitter, which is at BadgerBean, and then my website, which is www.coolbean.info. And Generally, every research paper, everything I put together, I always turn it into a 
you know, an, an extension version. And I do the same thing that Andrew did right there. I put, I try to succinctly put it into three bullet points so you don't have to read this whole darn thing. <laughs> now people can, that, that's why yeah. I do it. So people just skip our show. Yeah. Go to the end. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, just feel free to follow me and ask me any questions and, you know, c- come, you know, join the revolution, if you will, and do some of this data science with us. I think it's exciting and a great way to kind of push our profitability forward. I love it. Uh, uh, Sean, as always, you you are outstanding. Thanks for the the work you're doing. Thanks for uh, being so generous with your time and information. Um, as always, just uh, really, really appreciate it. Thank you both and have a great day. Thanks, guys. It's been fun. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Penny for Your Thoughts. We love your feedback. Please email us at a penny for your thoughts at gmail.com. That's a penny, the number four, your thoughts at gmail.com. Or reach out to Andrew and I on our social media. Thank you for tuning in.